Good morning. Isaiah chapter 64, I have entitled this this morning, The Time of Jacob's Trouble, subtitle, The Ultimate Scam. And rather than read what Pastor Lane read for us early, let me just give you how Isaiah 64 is divided very nicely into three different sections. If you look at verses 1 through 5a, it deals with Israel petitioning the Lord on things remembering what he did in the past. Verse three, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountain shook. I'm sure they're thinking of Moses receiving the commandments, the great deliverance that they had out of Egypt. And that's verses one through five. Five B, the second part of five B, it changes from remembering what the Lord did for them in the past to their confession of their own personal sin where you were angry with us and we have sinned and um, in these ways we continue we need to be saved so they're actually asking the Lord for deliverance they're looking for salvation and the context of this I should say one of the things we've been pointing out is the Bible and the chapters are not necessarily in a chronological order Chapter 64 happens before chapter 63. Chapter 64 causes chapter 63 to happen. And I'll explain that a little bit more as we get into it. And then in verses 8 through 12, with the exception of 10 and 11, which is still going to be future, talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen for another 100 years. But one of the things, again, that I want you to be sensitive to as we study God's word is that he'll do that. He will, he will take a verse and he'll have a future application and then he'll hop back and uh, continue on with the thought. And such is a case in verse 9, which is carrying the thought of, of the Lord. They want their trust in God and they're renewing their Petition, and they're asking God to intercede on their behalf once again. Now, last week, we walked through the chronological order of events that led up to Isaiah chapter 63. Let's just do a quick review. If you go back to 63, it starts with the question, who is this who comes from Eden, who has dyed garments from Basra? This would be modern-day Jordan, traveling in his great strength, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury, for the day of my vengeance is in my heart. Clearly a reference to Jesus after chapter 64 where they're actually calling on him, Lord, save us and redeem us. Well, when they do, he does. And so what we have in 63 is we went through the events in Scripture that led up. Now this week in chapter 64, it's actually a prayer that the remnant will pray to Jesus to save them. When they are in captivity in Basra, Petra, and um, it's from this place that they pray this prayer in Isaiah chapter 64. Now, they call on the name of Yeshua, Jesus. 
Uh, today, and throughout most of um, the last 2,000 years, there are reasons the Jewish people are not open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One reason, we're told in Romans 11, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When Israel rejected their Messiah, God began to work with Gentiles. Cornelius was the first one. But as history progressed, early church were all Jews. But what happened through history, events like the Crusades, the Inquisition, and in our lifetime, the Holocaust during World War II. Matter of fact, last week, Judy and I, we got for a present um, an updated version of Schindler's List. And in it, they had um, an interview with Steven Spielberg. Uh, he produced the movie. And in the interview, he said, if he had lived during that time, it could have easily have been him. There's a book that's out of print uh, written by Hal Lindsey many years ago. It's called The Road to Holocaust, way before his time. The book is out of print, whatever I find when I buy one, because when I ask people if they've read it, and they say, no, I've never heard of it before. I says, well, here, I'll give you my copy, but make sure you give it back. I have no idea where those copies went. <laughs> They're gone. And so I'm always, on the, on, I'm always looking. If there's one out there, I'll buy it. But it's a classic. I'm going to stun you with something that, that comes from the Encyclopedia Judica that Hal Lindsey put in his book, The Road to Holocaust, and what was the mentality um, during Martin Luther's time, the great reformer, um, Catholic priest, and responsible um, for the 90, what, 94 theses put on a Wittenberg door, 90-something. But we have the great Reformation, this great man, a mighty God, mighty fortress is our God, and so on and so forth. With all that going for him, there was a time that he was sympathetic towards the Jewish people. But later in his life, he wrote a track that was the complete opposite. Here's just part of Luther's track written in 1543. What then shall we Christians do with these damn rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, and we know about their lying and their blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. We must prayerfully and reverently practice merciful severity. Let me give you my honest advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christianity. Second, I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatrous lies, cursings, and blasphemies are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside, since they are not lords or officials or tradesmen or the like. Let them stay at home. Oh, we might well ask, what home? 
since they were presumably burned, point two. Six, I advise that usury be prohibited to them. All cash, treasure, silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventh, I recommend putting an axe, a hole, a spade, or a spindle in the hand of the young Jewish uh, men and women and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. And then this comment from the Encyclopedia um, Judica rightly comments about Luther's track. Now, short of Auschwitz's ovens and extermination, the whole Nazi Holocaust is completely pre-outlined here. Is it any wonder that Hitler and Julius Stetzer quoted Martin Luther as justification for their murders? The final solution for the Jews was actually a blueprint And as they would do this, they would rationalize what they did because of the great reformer, Martin Luther. You know, you want to say, Martin, say it ain't so. And yet, it can easily be found. And then, something interesting happened as Judy and I were driving to church this morning. Only on Sunday mornings uh, is there a, a radio station that plays folk music. Nothing but folk music and only on Sunday morning. So I tuned in. And um, as I was tuning it in, a Dylan song comes up. And um, the, the Dylan song is uh, God on, on Our Side. Now, unless you're my age, you probably have never heard the song. But the whole gist of the song, it has 10 verses in it, is that if you were born in the United States of America, well, we have God on our side. Well, that might have been true a couple hundred years ago, but that's not true today. But one of the verses, now Judy went on and Googled it, so by the time I got to the office, I printed it out. I'm just going to give you one of his verses. When the Second War came to an end, we found the Germans, and we were friends. Though they murdered six millions in the ovens they fried, the Germans, too, now have God on their side. And, and Luther's track is justification. Those damned Jews with their blasphemous doctrines cannot be tolerated. And um, what Dylan, very, very insightful, a lot of, and I've been to Auschwitz several times, and on some of them, in the chambers or in the prisons, is this is being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So should there be any wonderment if you're, Um, brought up in Judaism and that you sort of cringe when the name of Jesus is is mentioned. I believe there's a reason the Lord gave different names to uh, what we call the tribulation period. And I've often wondered about it because there's at least six, if not seven, different names for the same event. Um, Daniel 9 Calls it Dan, we call it Daniel's 70th week. He owes Israel one week. Jesus called it the Great Tribulation. Um, the book of Joel refers to it as the Day of the Lord. And in another place it's called the Great Indignation. But it's all for the same period of time. Be- between Revelation chapter 6 and 16, we have a seven-year period of time that goes into unbelievable detail as the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments are opened. 
But what it is primarily is what I call it this morning, the time of Jacob's trouble. That's another name for this period of time. And it got me thinking, Lord, why so many different titles? And as I thought about it, Isaiah 64 gave me the answer. One of the great things of, as we continue to go through the Bible over and over and over again, certain things sort of pop out at you. And it makes you ask questions. And one of my questions was, why so many names? And uh, the term, the time of Jacob's trouble, is clearly talking about just the Jewish people in particular. Um, We get it from Jeremiah 30. I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 30, verse 6. Ask now and see whether a man is even in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? And all faces have turned pale. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it will come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and burst your bonds. Foreigners will no more enslave you. The time of Jacob's trouble is given to describe the emotional effect Israel would go through rather than actually the the events themselves. So when you look at Revelation 6 through 16, what is it? Very, very detailed account of what happens, when it happens, and it gives for us the events themselves. However, Isaiah chapter 64 is not so much factual, but it's emotional. It's a prayer. It's a lament. It's a calling out on the Lord to be saved. And I believe that's the reason that we have different names for this period of time. Because Isaiah 64 deals with what they're going through here in their heart. It's a prayer. Oh Lord, would you not run the heavens? Would you not come down? Lord, will you save us? Will you remember that you've delivered us in the past? We know you can do it in the future. Please, Lord. So in that sense, Isaiah 64, the time of Jacob's trouble, is is a reason, I believe, why we have different names for these events. Now, the events that lead up to them actually praying this prayer, uh, there's things that have to happen to get them to Pray this, and that's my main point of where we're going to be this morning. And the first one um, is the fact that there has to be a period of time set aside just for Israel that has to last for seven years. Daniel 9, verse 27, says that someday there's going to be a covenant made with many for a seven-year period of time, one week. So crisis in the Middle East today. The world is looking for anybody that can bring some sort of resolution to Israel, to the Middle East. And so the Bible tells us that um, of the 69 weeks already fulfilled, there's still one future that's not. That's Daniel 9. But then it says in the middle of the week, he will, the Antichrist, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. Well, evidently, you got, you got to assume that if there's a peace treaty that's signed with Israel, part of the deal is they get their temple and they 
they're allowed to have their sacrifices again. But this is where the ultimate scam comes in. They believe they're Messiah. If you ask them, how do you know he's the Messiah? He'll give us permission, protect us, and we'll build a temple. And he does so. But the ultimate scam is, in the middle of the week, he brings an end to the sacrifice and offering. On the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. He said, when you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whosoever reads, let him understand. So Daniel 9, as we lay this out, uh, is telling us that there's still a seven-year period of time where God is going to deal directly with, with Israel. Isaiah 64 is them at the end of the tribulation period making this prayer as, as you're looking at Isaiah 64 this morning. Now, before the beginning of the seven-year period, the Apostle Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians that the rapture has to take place. He taught about it in First Thessalonians. And then somebody spread a rumor, somebody wrote a letter, somebody gave a false prophecy, and there was confusion to the point that Paul had to write Second Thessalonians. And in chapter two he says, um, I don't want anyone to deceive you by any means. I don't want you to be troubled. And as though the, the day of the Lord has come. And then he gives them the chronological order. I'm reading Second Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, the Greek there is apostasia, come first, and then the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. What will he do? Well, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, so that he's worshipped and he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This event is known as abomination of desolation. Now, I quoted Dr. Tommy Ice last week, and I'll preface my statement by saying this. I believe both are true, and I won't be dogmatic on either one. But the word for falling away, Dr. Tommy Ice, I believe, is leading in this field along with um, Arnold Fruchenbaum. Uh, and I'm quoting him right now. I believe there's a strong possibility that Second Thessalonians 2.3 is speaking of the rapture. What do I mean? Some pre-tribulationists, like myself, think that the Greek noun apostasia, usually translated apostasy, is a reference to the rapture and should be translated departure. Thus, this passage would be saying that the day of the Lord will not come until the rapture comes before. If apostasia is a reference to a physical departure, then Second Thessalonians 2.3 is strong evidence for pre-tribulationism. The same word, apostasia, only occurs one other place, Acts 21.21. 21. And in that context, it literally means a departing from one place and going to another. So I hold to this view Having said that, and the Bible clearly teaches that men will not endure right sound doctrine in the last days. So we know that that's true too. So 
But in the context here, I'm sort of siding up with Tommy. And how can I put this tactfully? That this, to some people, becomes a major point of contention to the point of, uh, of uh, making it such an issue that's all they ever talk about. And let me say this and why I think it's important. To me, it's not so much a matter of when it takes place, but why it has to take place. And the problem I have with, with being anything other than a pre-tribulational view is that the tribulation, chapter 6, verse 17, is the wrath of the Lamb. And for the life of me, I can't believe my bridegroom, I'm the bride, is going to come and take me and for a honeymoon spend it first three and a half years in the tribulation. That doesn't ring with, I don't think that's my, my idea of a honeymoon. Maybe the South Pacific and Sandy Beaches or whatever, I don't know. But definitely not that. So it's, it's more an attack on the very nature of, of my bridegroom and his nature that is, is the issue with me. Now, up till the time of the rapture, the Bible says that you and I are the light and the salt of this earth, a preservative. Amen? We're told to go in all the world and preach the gospel. Whoever believes it, be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. We're to occupy, keep busy, be about our Father's business until we're out of here. Well, what happens when we're out of here? God always has a witness. Well, immediately at the beginning of this period of time, the very last verse of the Old Testament in Malachi, it says, before the day of the Lord comes, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. He's going to turn the hearts of the children back to the father and the hearts of the father back to the children, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. So now we have the day of the Lord here. Rapture takes place. The witness of the church is gone. And who do we have showing up for sure? Elijah. And I believe the other one is Moses. Why do you believe that, Dwight? Because of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up for a little walk one day, and all of a sudden there was Moses and there was Elijah. I think they were having a staff meeting. I do. And um, Peter was all beside himself, didn't know what to say, but that never stops Peter from talking. And then a voice from heaven, as they're all googly-eyed over Moses and Elijah, says, Peter, get over it. This is my beloved son. Honor him. These are just my servants. They're called the two witnesses. So Revelation 11, verse 3 says, I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. And, (coughs) excuse me, and then they'll be killed by the Antichrist, also called the beast. It says, when they have finished their testimony, so they have the first three and a half years, they're preaching the gospel. The beast that descends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. So John is calling Jerusalem Sodom. That's how low that it sunk during this period of time. And then it says, and those from the peoples, 
from tribes and tongues and nations will actually see the dead bodies for three and a half days. They won't allow their bodies to be put in the graves. Do you realize that we're the only generation that has the technology to go on CNN or Fox and actually look to Jerusalem what's happening as it's happening? And that's what we're reading in verse nine. All the people of the world will see their dead bodies not allowed to be put in the grave. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice, make merry, send to one another, because these two prophets who tormented them who dwell on the earth. Now, during this time, they've been preaching the gospel, which is what? Well, Jesus came, he died for your sins, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again. That was the message, right? Now, these two prophets have been dead for three days. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them. They stand on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw him. Everything that they were preaching, he was dead, he came back to life, and he went into heaven. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice saying, come up here, and he ascended in heaven in a cloud. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? And their enemies saw them. If I'm not saved at that point, I'm saved after that point. Or at least you'd think that would be enough to convince. The the whole resurrection is being um, seen and played out. Everything that they've been preaching now has happened to them. Now, when the abomination of desolation occurs, one-third of the Jews will flee to Jordan, to Petra, to Basra. And again, this was last week study. Who is this who comes from Basra? And we put the map up there, how long it was, 1,600 furlongs. And um, that's in Isaiah chapter 16. And we're told in the book of Zechariah what they go through. This remnant that makes it to Petra, one-third of the Jews that make it there, supernaturally protected from from Satan and the Antichrist. And because he can't get to them, it says he, Revelation 12, he turns and he makes war with the woman who is the rest of the Jewish people. Now I'm quoting from Zechariah 13. It'll come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds will be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. So two-thirds are destroyed by the Antichrist, and yet one-third is supernaturally protected at Petra in Jordan. Verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Now this is important to catch because it's a major part of Isaiah chapter 64. They're there for three and a half years. And little by little by little, what is the Lord doing? He's refining them like silver. And he tests them like gold. What's the result of that? Then it says, then they will call upon my name. Whose name? The name of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. And when they do that, um, it will be fulfilling his last words that he, he spoke to the Jews when he walked the earth. He says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what are they doing? They're saying in verse 7 here, Lord save us. 
They call out upon his name. Zechariah 13 says, and when they call, I'm going to answer. And I will say, this is my people. All right? Everything that we've gone up to this point where they're calling out upon him is now a heartfelt prayer, which is all of Isaiah chapter 64. Let's look at just a couple of the verses that we go through it. The first part, remember again, their prayer is a petition based on God's past actions of deliverance. It talks about, in verse two, that the nations may tremble at your presence when you did awesome things from which we did not look when you came down. I'm thinking of the deliverance from Egypt. Lord, remember when you delivered us. When your hand came, those past events, basically, he's saying, Lord, you did it before. You can do it again. So that's up to verse 5a. Beginning with 5b, there's a change from calling on the past works of God to where they actually are repenting of their sins. And in verse 5 Be it says, you are indeed angry, for we have sinned. And these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. We we are like unclean things, for our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind, have taken us away, and there's, there's no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have consumed us because of our sins. There, these verses, five through seven, is simply a confession before salvation. Um, but it's not sins primarily, it's sin singular. And what I mean by that, in order to find out, you're gonna to have to turn to the book of Hosea, chapter five. Now, Hosea chapter five, is one of the minor prophets. I'm going to give you a little time to get to it. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one right in front of you in the book holder there. Isaiah, Hosea chapter 5. And I'm looking at the last verse, verse 15. The I there is a reference to the Lord himself. He says, I will return again to my place. So in order to return to your place, what does that imply? That you had to be there in the first place, right? What he is referring to is going back to heaven. He says, I'm going to go back to my place until they, Israel, acknowledge their offense. Notice there's not an S, offenses. It's singular. There's one single sin. And then he says, in their affliction, they will diligently seek me. Well, where is that? Well, that's Isaiah 64. That's them in Petra as they're being refined, whittled down, broken, afflicted, until they do what? Until they call upon them. And in their affliction, when they're in the fire, then they're gonna call on me. Now, chapter six, verse one, this is what they say. They, these are, this is uh, the remnant they say, come, let's return to Meshua, the Lord. For he has torn, he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. How long? Well, after two days, he will revive us. 
And on the third day, he will raise us up, and we're going to live in his sight. Now, this is where a New Testament verse from Peter comes in, where he says, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. How long has it been since Jesus walked the earth? We mark our calendar by it. 2,000 years, a couple days. The third day is, again, a reference to the millennium when Israel literally lives in the millennial kingdom age. In the third day, we will be raised up and we will live with Messiah. And so we have um, the real issue was not so much their sins, but their main sin of John 1.11 says, he came into his own and his own received him not. But in Isaiah 64, we have this prayer where they're confessing their sin and they're saying, Jesus, save us. And Zechariah tells us when they're being refined that they're gonna call upon me and then I'm going to answer them. Okay, that's the introduction. Should be done by two or three. Easy, no problem. No, let's go through this quickly. The first... um, these verses here, the single offense of rejecting their, their um, Messiah. And the, the third one, verses 8 through 12. <clears throat> Let's go back to Isaiah 64, 8 through 12. And again, here's a, here's a good example of uh, between verses 8 and 9. We'll have a gap of over 100 years between 9 and 10 that is still future as Isaiah is writing them. And then we go back to current, this current future prayer. And I'll explain it as we go through it. So this part here is sort of an affirmation of their trust in God and a renewed p- petition that they would be saved. But now, Lord, you are our father. And we are the clay. You're the potter. And all we, in the works of our hands, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We are all your people. Oh, great. Hold that thought. Now we're going to change subjects in 10 and 11. Your holy city are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where your fathers prayed you, is burned up with fire. And all the pleasant things are laid waste. Gang, this doesn't happen. This is written in about 600 BC. And this event here isn't going to happen for another 100 years when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and it's, the temple is burned and it's destroyed. But then, going back to verse 12, we hop back to this prayer that's going to be prayed even still uh, in the future. And he says, will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? And I would put verse one at the end of this where it says, oh, that you would run the heavens that you would come down. And that's their prayer. Lord, please deliver us is what's being said here. Can you imagine? And this is, um, it's hard even to to put into words if if you're a Jewish person who has lived their whole life where the sudden reality comes in. You mean that Jesus that was here 2,000 years ago, he was really our Messiah? 
And what is the emotional response to that realization all of a sudden? The Bible actually tells us in the book of Zechariah, which is the last book before the Old Testament book of Malachi. So I'm gonna give you a minute to turn there. Go right to the end of the Old Testament, you'll see Malachi. And right before Malachi is Zechariah. And what we have recorded here, if Isaiah 64 is an emotional prayer called the time of Jacob's trouble, here we're told of the emotional reaction when they realize it was really Jesus all along. Pick it up in verse 10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and they will grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadar Rayam in the, in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. Leave me alone. This is too much for me to handle. The reality that we pierced him, our own Messiah that we've been longing and waiting for our whole life, we did that. And when they look on him, if you turn the page of chapter 13, look at verse six, somebody will say to Jesus, "Um, what are these wounds in your hands? And he will answer, well, these are the wounds that was wounded in the house of my friends, my people, my family, my brethren. And it's such an overwhelming mourning. Imagine only having one child and losing him. Well, it's even more than that because they don't want this to be a public grieving thing. Leave me alone. I want to be alone. I want to grieve personally and allow it to enter into my being what we did to our own Messiah. So the purpose, as we look at Zechariah in, in these things, I see that God's purpose and why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, it's given a different name because it's not so much factual but emotional. Their affliction caused them to do one thing, it caused them to call on the Lord. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? All right. The Bible actually teaches this. In Psalm 119, this is what it said. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to raise your hand or anything like that, but I wonder just how many of us, before we were saved, we had to be afflicted. We had to be brought down low. And I mean so low that the only way you could look is up. 
Um, Bruce Carroll last Sunday, Sunday before he was with us, but um, Calvary Chapel Buckeye, good friend of mine, his name is Ed Urek, I'm on his board, and uh, he had Bruce and Nikki down there, and so he sent us their whole message, and it was pretty much the same one that he gave here, and remember his brother Milton praying for him, Lord, whatever it takes, break him, and uh, just whatever it takes to save him, Lord, and he'd do this on and on and on, just like we're praying for some of our loved ones. Whatever it takes, Lord, that's what we pray, just so they get saved and they don't go to hell or enter this, this tribulation period. Well, part of Bruce's testimony was that he lost it all, and he was down, and he said, Jesus, if you're real, here I am. Guess what? He called on the Lord, and what did the Lord do? The Lord answered him. He had no idea what the Lord had in store for him. He had no idea how much the Lord would use him and has used him for many, many years. So the main point here is that affliction many times for you and me uh, in actually coming to a saving knowledge. Isaiah 57 verse 15 puts it this way. The Lord says, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble and a broken spirit. And humility, gang, you can't, you can't make up humility. You can't just put it on and pretend you're being humble. You know how real humility is fostered and, and it, it grows? When you're in the presence of God. Remember Peter? The first time he realized who was in the boat with him? Oh, they had been fishing all night. Didn't catch a thing. And the Lord said, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter said, I'm pretty good at this, Lord. Fished all night. Not, not, they're not biting. He says, nevertheless, if you say so, we will. Biggest catch in his life. Peter knew it was a miracle. And all he could do is hit his face on that floor of that boat. And he said, Lord, depart from me because I am a sinful man. Peter knew who was in the boat with him. And it caused a humility and a brokenness. Didn't the same thing happen to Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And all of a sudden, he becomes painfully aware. He says, woe is me. Because I am a sinner. And I'm in the presence of a holy living God. And I dwell with people who are unholy too. What brings about true humility? when you're conscious of the presence of the Lord. And you can't help but being humble when you realize that he did it all and all he wants from me is to be grateful. Now that's a good deal. And I will take that deal any day because I know there's no way I can pull it off. And unless it's all Jesus and no Dwight, that's doable. And having said that, I can't do anything without him. But on the other hand, with him, what does it say? I can do all things, as long as I'm given the glory to the, to the Lord where it comes from. But if you're close to him, you're not gonna be a proud person. You're gonna be a humble person because you're gonna realize what you've been delivered from. Now, Jesus was witnessing to Nicodemus. I call Nicodemus a truth seeker. 
And he wasn't proud. A little embarrassed because he came at night. He didn't want the other guys to see him. And he said, Jesus, you're different. Nobody can do what's being done unless God's with them. He said, Nick, you need to be born again. And uh, he didn't get it. So he knew that Nicodemus knew the scriptures. So he explained it to him this way. In verse 14, he says, now Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He goes, huh, I wonder what it means by that. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 21. Just read about four or five verses. As you're turning, let me set the stage. They're delivered from Egypt. There's about two million of them strong. Um, There's a cloud that covers them by day, keeps them shade, and at night, it's a fire, keeps them warm. Verse four says, when they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, that the souls of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against Moses and against God, and why have you brought us out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness, for there's no food and no water. That's not true, they had both. And our souls loathe this worthless bread, manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Moses, will you pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us? So Moses prayed. Then the Lord said to Moses, I want you to make a fiery serpent, set him on a pole, and it will be that anyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, always some bronze is symbolic of judgment, And the serpent, of course, sin. It's a picture of sin being judged. And put it on the pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, here's my point. It wasn't until they were bitten that they looked to the cross. They had to be afflicted before they got themselves into a proper mindset. The Lord, you're looking over us. We're not being grateful. We're grumbling and complaining. But when the affliction came and a cure for that affliction was made in the form of this bronze serpent, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I believe the wheels began to turn in Nicodemus. You know that Nick got saved? Yep, then he had a famous... TV program called Nick at Night that came years later. Well, that's not really true. But Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, right? They came. And so they were, disciples were told, but secretly. So we have here um, the necessity of affliction before we look to the cross. And when they were bitten, and only after they were bitten, in their affliction, like Bruce, like many of us, that's when we looked up. And that's when the Lord heard us. He says, now that you're humbled and broken, yeah, you had to be bit first. But now that you realize you're going to die and you have nothing to lose, uh, that's when they were saved. 
Finally, God doesn't always afflict us to save us, but he often afflicts us to keep us from being big-headed and proud. Um, we'll close by having you turn to Second Corinthians 12. I was winding up this study. I thought it was all over with, and I was in, my book Bible was open to Isaiah chapter 64, and I thought, Lord, wouldn't it be great to end this thing in Second Corinthians 12? And I took my Bible, I was in Isaiah, and I just flopped it open. Where do you suppose it flopped open to? Second Corinthians chapter 12. I said, I'll take that as a yes. So what we have here is Paul needing to be afflicted because of all the visions and mighty works that he had done. Let's pick it up in verse two. This is Paul. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago Whether in the body, I don't know. Whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. If you track back 14 years, you'll find the Apostle Paul being stoned and left for dead. And I believe that's he actually was dead. And the Lord took him to heaven, set him back, and revived him. He says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out, I don't know. God knows. But he was caught up into paradise. Heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to even utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'm not going to be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I forbear lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I would be exalted or prideful, above measure by the abundance of the revelation. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, a demon, to buffet me or to afflict me, lest I be exalted above measure. So now we have a whole nother reason that God allows affliction. And in this case, Paul says, unless I would be exalted above measure, unless I'd get a big head, and start writing books about my trip to heaven. Concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. God's not answering them. Three times, Lord, I don't want it. I pray in Jesus' name, no answer. Second time, no answer. Third time, the Lord speaks to him. And it's not so much sometimes when we're going through affliction that the Lord doesn't answer our prayer. Just the fact that you hear his voice, that's all you really need. That's all Paul needed here. He got his answer. He said, Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Oh, that's all Paul needed to hear. What a, what a change in attitude. Get rid of this thing, get rid of this thing, get rid of this thing. No, it's there for a reason. I'm gonna allow the affliction to keep you humble, Paul. Because when you're humble, you're still usable. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities or afflictions that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Okay, and this is just part of the list. Just look over at chapter 11, verse 24. In prison often, 
By the Jews, I received 40 stripes five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked, day and a night in the water. In journeys often, perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils of people in the city, in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, and fasting often, cold and naked, and besides all that, what concerns me daily concerning the things with the church. You know what he calls this stuff? He calls these um, um, nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in heaven. He says, this is nothing. These are light things compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. All right, final thought. Some of you are thinking you said final thought 10 minutes ago, Dwight. This is final thought. Affliction is just a part of being a Christian. Somebody want to say amen? amen? Affliction. I should, I'm praying, Lord, I'm a speaker. You call me to speak. So why don't I have a voice? That makes sense to me. <laughs> but I'm not, ex- I'm not exempt from having allergies because I'm a Christian. We are told all those who live godly in Jesus Christ are going to suffer persecution. Joel Osteen is wrong. You can, this is not your best life now. No, it could be your worst. And the way I see things, we're being marginalized by the day and uh, being re- replaced and marginalized more than any other uh, group that's out there. If the world hates you, words of encouragement, know that it hated me before it hated you. Hey, you're in good company with the Lord himself. Do not marvel, my brother, if the world hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't think they're going to get all happy, clappy, and happy when you start sharing Jesus with them. Oh, you narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobic, blah, 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 Christian. No, that's the attitude that's out there today. Question, can you handle it? Can you handle it like Paul handled it? My closing question is, can you say with Paul, verse 10, let's read it, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The great thing about just going through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is we have all these different names for the tribulation. And the Lord singles one out and says, no, I don't want it just to be a bunch of information about what happens. I want you to know that what my people are going through in their heart and what it's gonna take to bring them to the end of themselves where they eventually call upon me. Now, if you're here this morning, Know that if you give your life to the Lord, the first thing I tell a person is that the devil himself is going to be directly involved or some demon and try to undo what's just been done, the parable of the sower. And then it goes on to say that this road that you're on is very narrow. Few be that find it. And then it says it's difficult. Still want to sign up? The answer to that question is yes. Yes as long as it's the truth. 
as long as this book is true, and as long as what the Lord said is happening is going to happen, then hmm, I'm just a pilgrim, and we're just passing through. This isn't home. We're not home yet. But it uh, looks like could be pretty soon. Amen? Amen. Leave it at that. Let's stand. We'll pray. Lord, thank you for the Isaiah chapter 64. Thank you that you set a chapter aside that deals with a prayer that your people are going to pray yet in the future. They're going to ask you to come and deliver them. And we know this is all past tense to you. It's a done deal, Lord. As far as you're concerned, the kingdom is already here. We pray for perseverance and endurance. And to have this attitude of gratitude instead of murmuring and complaining that we'd be like Paul and actually get to a place. Most of us are not there, Lord. We say we glory in our infirmities. Forgive us for our murmuring and complaining and instead of counting it all joy. We want to be like you, Lord. And so we pray that you'd help us grow in this grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.